The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. While I appreciate the severity of the situation, sire, I, I don't see how I can help. I want you to find Turek. Rescue the princess. Save the kingdom. Well, I would risk life and limb for you in the kingdom, sire. You know I would, but I know I can count on you, Sinbad. After all, Baghdad has made you a rich man. But then it made me a poor one. I don't understand. Well, upon my return, I found my home confiscated and my riches gone. Uh, we, we needed the house and we needed the money. Why did we need Sinbad's money? Yes, why? Well, Admir said... And what of your people? Many of them are homeless, without jobs. They live in squalor while you make more money than you'll ever need. Eventually, the riches will trickle down. Yes, they're being trickled upon, but not by riches. Much of this is my fault, Sinbad. I allowed my son to pursue profit and progress at any cost. I've been a fool. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 3rd, 2011. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and good morning. Welcome to another edition of Just Right. Robert Vaughn off today, taking a holiday, but will return next week. Today on the show, we want to talk about a number of issues. Uh, closing off the show near the end, we want to talk about the whole fluoride issue that has be- become so large in the city. You know, is there a skeletal fluorosis in our water closet? Oh boy, there's a there's a question to ask. We also want to talk about the continuing debate about poverty and the welfare state. Poverty pimps, is there one on your street corner? Do you have a poverty pimp working in your community? We'll be listening to one of them today, later on in the show. And of course, we want to continue our discussion on capitalism and morality as it was started on the show last week. 519-661-3600 is always a number you can call to reach us. And as always, email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Now, last week, if you tuned in, you would have uh, heard me beginning a critique of a London Free Press editorial called Capitalism Needs Controls to Be Moral. Today, I want to deal with part two of that essay, which was originally written or published in the Free Press February 19th by Goldwyn Emerson. And you know, I'm, I'm not trying to pick on this guy, but he has put in one essay just about every common misconception about capitalism that you can almost put together in a single essay. So uh, in that sense, he served a great purpose in, in helping identify this. But he's not alone in his viewpoints, and we'll be looking at that a little bit later on too. So last week I was looking at his position on just you know, capitalism in general and the issue of morality. Uh, this time I think we're kind of drifting into the issue of poverty, so it's, it's quite apropos that we should be looking at the second half of his essay in this uh, context. Now, of course, I personally think the solution to poverty is to create wealth, but some people think the solution to poverty is to redistribute the wealth that we already have. And 
Goldwyn Emerson writes in his essay, and I'm continuing here, and again, I have to stop every time I have a comment to add, but he, you know, here he starts. Long ago, Adam Smith, 1723 to 1790, in his book Wealth of Nations, addressed the problems caused by extreme capitalism. Now, you see, I have to stop already because Adam Smith did no such thing. Adam Smith ne never heard of the word capitalism. It does not appear once in any of his writings. The word capitalism was most popularized by Karl Marx, who by adding an ism to a non-political system of free, voluntary, and consensual exchange in order to politicize the term, we're going to hear about that a bit too, and to institute communism and general destruction of the well-being of the people, that's why he called it capitalism. What is extreme capitalism? How, do you, how would you define it? Capitalism is the separation of state and economics. That means the government doesn't tell you what you buy and from who you buy it. You decide that. And any policy that does not allow for free economic exchange based on the consent of those individuals certainly cannot be called capitalist by any stretch of the imagination. So let's keep that clear. But he, but he writes and he says, although Smith is frequently quoted by hard-nosed capitalists, he was, he was conscientious in his desire to help the poor. Well, I have to stop again. This is not true. I'll be dealing with this later because someone else deals with it better than I can. But also desire, you know, desire justifies or explains nothing. If you have a desire to help the poor, that's great, but it won't give you any information on how to help them. You know, it's like being hungry and not knowing how to get food. You can be hungry and you can have that feeling of hunger, but do you know how to get the food? If you were in the wild, would you know how to hunt, how to, how to fish, how to do the things necessary to quell that feeling? But, you know, the one thing, it certainly doesn't justify the initiation of force against other people just because you have a desire to help people. That's totally the wrong way to go about it. And he writes... Uh, he writes here, he says, um, as well as being a distinguished economist, Smith was, uh, for a time, a moral philosopher at the University of Glasgow. And of course, that would, it's not uncommon, and, but like economists, you know, economists think in very pragmatic, economist-like fashion, and they're, they're weighing costs and benefits. That's what they do. That's what the science of, economy, of economics is to a large degree. And uh, Emerson continues, he says, uh, he empathized, referring to Smith, to Adam Smith, with the burdens of the laboring class and wrote about the need to develop systems of sharing. Now, he didn't write any such thing, and again, we'll get into that later. But again, sharing is voluntary. Systems of sharing are coercive. They're done by government in the sense of what is being advocated here. In other words, they're anti-moral, which is his case of capitalism being anti-moral. And he writes, to paraphrase Adam Smith's plan, it can be described simply as the government developing controls that work like a bungee cord. <laughs> a bungee cord. Now, I don't know. What do you say to something like that? It's, it's a mindless term. It's utterly amoral. No consideration for morality in the slightest. And here's how he justifies it. He writes, when the wealthy became too far above the middle wage earners, the government could use regulations to draw the wealthy back down to a level closer to the middle wage earners. When the poor became too needy, regulations pulled their levels up like a bungee cord towards the middle wage earnings earners. Now, I just read that and I'm going, oh my goodness, this is scary. Who gets to decide what's too far above? Well, that has to be a state legislature or some guy with a whip and chain. Somebody is going to use force because people aren't going to stop improving themselves just because some guy with a gun says so. And, you know, if you, according to this theory, 
if you really pay attention to it, then the middle class, you would think, would pay no taxes at all, right? Because if, if you're only robbing the wealthy to bungee cord them down, and you're only going to give their money to the poor to bungee cord them up, then the, then the middle class should be left out of the whole equation because they're the ones that, that he says they should be equalized with, right? And yet, look at the taxes on the middle class. Where's all that going? It's going to these same programs. Only the, the problem is the middle class is actually paying welfare to the rich, to the corporate interest, as well as to the poor. They get, they get hit on both ends. And that's the truth of the whole situation. Then he writes that a later writer, John Ruskin, 1819 to 1900, expressed in, in his book, Unto This Last, the need to restrict the limits of extreme capitalism. He tells a story of a village blacksmith who shoed horses for the price of one dollar per shoe. I love these stories. When a stranger came through town with his horse, which had lost a shoe, the unfortunate traveler was more or less at the mercy of the blacksmith. There was no solution except to replace the missing shoe before he could travel further. In this case, the unethical blacksmith put his most aggressive capitalistic impulses to work and charged ten dollars per shoe. Per shoe. Ruskin used this story to point out that capitalism needs controls if it is to be a moral system. Well, what's wrong with charging 10 bucks a shoe if the guy's willing and able to pay for it? What's immoral about that? He didn't force it on him. And the condition of this, is, it's just ridiculous. You know, for all the traveler knew, the blacksmith may not have even existed. Where does it say he has no choice and that he's so unfortunate and at the mercy of the blacksmith? What if there was no blacksmith? Whose mercy would he be at then? What if the blacksmith wasn't open for business? What if he was closed or on vacation that week? Who, at whose mercy would he be then? What if he didn't want to sell him anything? You know, what if you, oh, I'm closed, I don't, don't feel like selling you something, you're a stranger. Now, if he could get 10 bucks out of him, if the guy didn't have the $10, well, he couldn't get it out of him, could he? So, he must, so in order for this to even happen, the blacksmith would have to kind of guess, well, this guy's got a lot of money. Otherwise, you wouldn't get the 10 bucks, no matter how much you asked him for it. So... The whole story completely omits any sense of reality, including the realities of supply, demand, need, and all those things. It's a completely make-believe story. Um, it, you know, it's, but of course our writer's obsessed with price and feels entitled to tell his imaginary story, to, to hide this sense of entitlement. You know, if, if, if I charge $1 to one person for this, uh, should I be allowed to charge a different price to someone else? Why not? You know, that's how doctors used to, to do business before we had socialized health care. They would charge more money to the richer and less to the poor, and it worked well for a long time. But he continues, and this again is Mr. Emerson, we can easily make comparisons between today's prices and those of 100 years ago, but we can or we can't easily, rather, but we can question how much is too much for today's highest-paid workers. An interesting article appeared in the January 7th London Free Press about Senator Raymond Levine, who earned nearly $390,000 salary in the past three years. Yeah, a real, you know, Senator Raymond Levine, a capitalist, right? guy who's out there making money voluntarily on a capitalist market. Earned nearly $390,000 salary of the past three years and ran up an expense account of approximately $320,000 for the same period, a total of $703,855. Also in the free press, we read of Canadian executives earning over $24 million in one year. In 2009, Hunter Harrison earned $17,343,160. Boy, he's got right down to the cent here. As chief executive of Canadian National Railways. Reading this, I thought about the old rusty green CNR overpass on Oxford Street and wondered how much it would cost Harrison to arrange for a much-needed new paint job. 
Since the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, perhaps it's time to bring out that ethical bungee cord again, he concludes. Well, ethical bungee cord, it's just nothing ethical about it. I can't even think of anything ethical to attach to such a thing. You know, do, do people like, like this ever ask, does socialism need controls to be moral? I've never heard that question asked. But the reason's obvious. Socialism is the control, an immoral control. It's one based on envy, on greed, on a complete inversion of morality, and we keep evading that particular thing. We think our health care system is failing because of, because we're, you know, of economic principles or we don't have enough doctors or all sorts of... When it's really a moral principle. You, there's no, nature does not provide something for nothing to anyone. Uh, you know... But I've never heard it. Could, could it be possible to argue for controlling socialism, say, by using capitalism as the control? I don't think so. But guess what today's big disparity controversies are really all about? It's about the disparity between the public sector workers and the labor monopoly known as, you know, or, uh, or the labor monopoly as the public sector workers and the private sector. I mean, the, the disparity there is huge. And it's a real disparity, in the sense that Mr. Emerson should have identified. One caused by laws applied unequally in the favor of some at the expense of others. And, you know, the word competitive has no meaning outside of a voluntary system of exchange. In the real world, everyone competes with everyone, producer versus producer, consumer versus consumer, labor versus labor, producer versus consumer, labor versus consumer, producer, I mean, all, all, any combination. The only thing that makes it all work is that this competition must take place in a non-coercive environment. And that environment is called a free market, which means free from coercion. That's what it means. When people say, I don't like the free market, they mean, I like, I like coercion. I want to enter force. I want to break, you know, thou shalt not steal, which is not a religious commandment, by the way. And that's really what's being called for whenever anyone wants to fight against what we call the free market. The free market merely means people are individually free within that market to choose the, the goods they buy and from whom they buy them, and in which all transactions are contracted consensually. That's all it means. This is not a law of the jungle, as collectivists and dictators like to say. The law of the jungle is brute physical force in a complete absence of any kind of rights whatsoever. You know, one, good, one famous capitalist I know always said, morality ends where a gun begins. And, of course, that's so true. When persuasion fails, use force. Again, the philosophy of rapist thieves and most politicians who don't seem to see the difference. You know, newsflash, folks, capitalism is the only moral economic system. It's based on the principle of consent, legally recognized through the institution of voluntary contract, and on the principle of individual rights, under which each and every individual is equal before and under the law. So, you know, give me some extreme capitalism, please. And we'll take a bigger look at this. Now we're going to take a look at the poverty right after this break. And we'll be back in a couple of minutes. I am a privateer. My allegiance is to myself alone. I earn my living in various ways. Buying, selling. Plundering. The situation calls for it. Piracy is a risky business. I prefer commerce. forgot. I have to have 
some goat's milk. After Mrs. Drysdale takes my sober enough mash, she has to have fresh goat's milk every half hour to stop the burning. Well, I reckon if broken bar or some well-to-do neighborhood like this, folks is bound to keep goat. Everybody except us. We ain't even got a cow. Nor pigs neither. Nor chickens. We ain't even got nothing to pull a plow. You're supposed to be so dad blame rich. I'll bet we're the only family in Beverly Hills that ain't got a mule. I reckon it is high time I was stocking this place. Even Mr. Drysdale's been after me to buy some cattle. Well, good for him. Yeah, just the other day he says to me, he says, uh, Mr. Clampett, you got $25 million in cash. You ought to put some of that money into stock. <laughs> <laughs> and that, of course, was from the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, you know, one of the things that made the Beverly Hillbillies so memorable, at least in its early seasons, it got really silly in its later seasons, went on forever, uh, was the spectacle of this dirt-poor mountaineer family suddenly finding themselves wealthy beyond belief, living in this incredible Beverly Hills ma- mansion, and yet still acting and behaving from their former position of poverty. They still thought they were in that state of mind, and it it made an interesting contrast, uh, for humor at least. But uh, I wish it was always such a funny situation, but people take it very seriously, the the disparity between uh, rich and poor, when, of course, there isn't really one in the sense that most of the world experiences it in North, North America compared. Now, here's another person arguing the same thing that our former writer did, only this is a criticism of that by Peter Foster, appeared in the National Post February 2nd of this year, and the headline read, IMF Chief Twists Adam Smith's View of Inequality. Now, I wonder who just did that. And he writes, quote, Modern liberals used to reflexively condemn Adam Smith as the father of capitalism, although he had never heard the word. More recently, however, they have been trying to recruit him, switching their emphasis from misunderstanding what he wrote in The Wealth of Nations to misquoting what he said in The Theory of Moral Sentiments. One significant cause to which they have been attempting to sign up the 18th century Scottish philosopher is combating the income gap. And, of course, that was our topic in the first quarter. Which is actually, by the way, not an income gap. It's a productivity gap. You know, we're always, they always talk about effects and not causes. And he writes, in a recent speech, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, head of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, declared that Adam Smith, quote, quote, Adam Smith, one of the founders of modern economics, recognized clearly that a poor distribution of wealth could undermine the free market system, end quote. However, Smith says nothing whatsoever about a poor distribution of wealth undermining the market, uh, responds Mr. Foster. The notion of a welfare state was utterly alien both to Smith's political times and his own moral inclinations. Smith lived in an age of personal responsibility. Poor relief was a local, personal affair, as was the beneficence that Smith praised as the highest virtue. Beneficence, wrote Smith, is always free. It cannot be extorted by force. Forced redistribution would have offended Smith's notion of justice, and he would instantly have spotted that, quote, social justice, end quote, is just a weasel concept that reverses the notion of justice entirely. As Matt Ridley points out in his book, The Rational Optimist, today, of Americans officially designated as poor, 99% have electricity, running water, flush toilets, and a refrigerator. 95% have a television. 88% have a telephone. 71% have a car, and 70% have air conditioning. Cornelius Vanderbilt had none of these, he writes. Uh, 
When it comes to the relative poverty of underdeveloped countries, Smith would quickly see that it was rooted not in insufficient aid, which has been a disaster, but in, in kleptocratic governments that keep the invisible hand in chains, he concludes, and I agree with that entirely. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I know that Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, for example, he thinks Adam Smith is the father of communism, but not because of any desire on Smith's part to redistribute wealth. Apparently, Smith adhered to this theory of intrinsic value of work, which was purely an economic theory, but which, which helped you know, lead to the establishment of communism, where it was argued that work was some kind of, had some kind of intrinsic value in and of itself, and that productivity was, you know, just some capitalistic plot for some to gain profit at the expense of others. That was the thinking, and it still is in a lot of people today, as we're about to hear. Now, coming up momentarily is possibly, I guess, one of the more civilized conversations and debates you might hear with poverty activist and head of Ontario's anti-poverty coalition, John Clark. He's not particularly known as one for rational discussion. This is the same John Clark who began his poverty activism right here in London, Ontario, way back in the late 1980s, and who at that time, I remember, made it clear to all Londoners listening to the Wayne McLean show on CFPL AM radio there that, quote, Bob Metz disgusts me. Everything Bob Metz says is disgusting. He's disgusting. His philosophy is disgusting. His party is disgusting, referring to Freedom Party, of course. His mentor is disgusting, and I think he was referring to Mark Emery at the time, and so forth and so on. It was quite, quite entertaining, actually. I had written and I'd published an essay at the time called Marchers Towards Poverty, in which I criticized Clark and his group of being an oxymoronic group with an oxymoronic goal. Think about it for a minute. A union of the unemployed? How self-contradictory can you get? What are they looking for? Security and unemployment? There's plenty of that going around already. What would they do if nobody reacts? Go on strike? <laughs> the implications are, are just irrational. Uh, surely Monty Python must have done a skit on this. Uh, you know, geez, I should have checked. You know, I might have found something on this. And if you were looking at uh, at all in the uh, National Post, you'll see on February 11th all these pictures of John Clark breaking into Toronto City Hall and Doug Ford telling uh, the activists to, quote, get a job. I mean, he's still doing the same things now he was doing in the 1980s, and where has he gotten? Um, you know... Since I first met him, he's been arrested for staging riots at Queen's Park. Most recently, you know, this event I just told you about in Toronto. Uh, you can imagine how all this zero tax and cut spending talk must be bugging a guy like John Clark. So when I saw him being brought up in the news and in the context of local discussions on the debate, well, I went into the Freedom Party video vault. That's my euphemism for the unsorted box of video interviews and newscasts I still have to get around to cataloging. But lo and behold, there it was a taping with John Clark. Now, the real value in hearing what you're about to hear is in reaching an understanding, I think, of what it is that motivates someone like John Clark to do the kinds of things he does. What is it he hates so much? What is it he really wants? What is his philosophy? What's his goal? Uh, whatever conclusions you might arrive at, one thing is certain. John Clark is consistent. He's persistent. He's insistent. And, well, I'll comment more on the other side of our bottom-of-the-hour break. Now, originally broadcast in 1996 on Lindsay Cable 10 in Lindsay, Ontario, of course, and at the time the Mike Harris government had a majority government in the Ontario legislature, but the person uh, John Clark is debating is yours truly, myself, on a show called Search for Understanding, which was hosted at the time by John Panter. 
Now, I have to warn you, this was a low-budget cable cast <laughs> at its best. This was not Rogers or McLean Hunter or anybody. So the sound levels were a bit inconsistent. Don't panic. You might even hear a little bit of a hiss here and there. Uh, if, if you could see the picture of this, uh, it would take away from the conversation, let me tell you, if I, if I explained where we were. But it's quite listenable, despite uh, what you might uh, think. But uh, I'll be back in about, oh, give me... 10, 12 minutes or so. But in the meantime, listen carefully to what John Clark has to say, both on this side of the break and on the other. Our theme for the next half hour is politics and poverty, the impact of the Mike Harris government on the economy of Ontario. We're going to ask the question, what can government do about poverty? And we might even try and define what poverty is. My guests this afternoon are John Clark of the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, and Robert Metz of the Freedom Party of Ontario. Guys, welcome. Hi, John. Thank you. John Clark, I'll start with you. You're described by your organization, and I'll quote here, as a very prominent and militant anti-poverty activist, unquote. Now, poverty might be a growing phenomenon, but I'll bet it doesn't pay very well. What does a militant uh, anti-poverty anti uh, activist, uh, how does he earn a living, and what is the Ontario Coalition all about? Well, the, the, the Coalition Against Poverty is, a, is an umbrella organization of, uh, of um, anti-poverty groups, unemployed workers associations in, in, uh, in different communities in Ontario. Um, we come out of a march that was organized in 1989 uh, where people got together and marched across Ontario. Um, <clears throat> at that time we realized there was a need for a long-term organization of the unemployed and poor and we've been in the process of building it ever since with our work of course being transformed over the last year and a bit with the advent of the, uh, of the Mike Harris government. Uh, as to how I personally survive, well, I'm, uh, I'm the, uh, the only full-time organiser within the organisation and uh, uh, I'd very naturally be happy to swap paychecks with Mike Harris. Uh, Robert Metz, uh, does, does the problem of poverty, as you see it, call for less government or more government involvement? Well, I, I, know, I don't look at government in terms of less and more. I look at it in terms of proper or improper government. Um, there's just a lot of things that can be done in that sense that government can do. Most of it is uh, undoing a lot of the legislation that's done now. And one thing certainly government cannot do is create jobs. Um, government can take one job from one person and create another job magically by taking the resources from somewhere else. But to actually create the job, it's not doing that. It's just transferring wealth. And transference of wealth does not solve poverty. Poverty, then, speaking of it, let's, let's try to define what the problem is. Uh, there are statistics that indicate that uh, poverty is more widespread now than at any time since 1962. And if you don't like those statistics, uh, there are other statistics. Uh, an organization called Campaign 2000 uh, has indicated that, uh, insofar as child poverty is concerned, 24% of the kids in metropolitan Toronto uh, live uh, in, in poverty. Uh, presumably the same statistics apply for the kids uh, here in Lindsay. Uh, at the same time, we have uh, apparently a widening gap between the rich and the poor, and we've seen the phenomenon of, of, of expanding and multiplying food banks. But on the other hand, uh, we're constantly told that Canada is the best country in which to live. Um, I'm self-employed, for instance, and uh, as such, I eat what I kill, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, any given year, my income might be down, mm -hmm. and I would find myself living under the poverty line. But I have to say, if that's poverty, I can do that standing on my head. Uh, what is poverty? And, and 
do we have more poverty now than at any other time in the past? But let's uh, start with you, John. Well, I think undeniably we do have uh, an incredible increase in, uh, in poverty. And I think it reflects um, partly um, changes, of course, within the, uh, within the economy uh, internationally. Uh, but I think it also uh, represents a, a conscious attack that's being made on, uh, on, on working people uh, by governments. And Mike Harris is the, uh, is the prime example, the cutting edge of that agenda. Uh, what we have is a situation where mass unemployment has been perpetuated in this country. Uh, the central bank uh, has a policy of maintaining a natural rate of unemployment of 9% and it intervenes to ensure that those unemployment levels are maintained. At the same time as you have mass unemployment, you have, um, you have uh, an assault on the income support programs that people who are unemployed have traditionally been allowed to, uh, to rely upon, unemployment insurance and, and welfare. Now, if you start to cut those programs at a time of high unemployment, you of course create, um, you strengthen the bargaining power of employers vis-a-vis -vis, uh, workers and you create a situation where it's possible to drive down wages and, and so that poverty doesn't only become a reflection of, uh, of unemployment, it becomes a reflection of working for low wages as well. Uh, for those two reasons, I think you're seeing an incredible proliferation of, of poverty that's absolutely undeniable. Bob Metz, is there, is there uh, as much poverty as John Clark would uh, uh, well, believe? there's as much poverty as we're willing to pay for through government programs, and there's as much poverty as we're willing to define, uh, depending how you want to define poverty. I mean, I found myself in that poverty class, so to speak, but I would never have considered myself poor. Uh, to me, I see poverty as a broad social condition from which people could not possibly pull themselves up, even if they tried their best and used every opportunity they, opportunity they had at their disposal, which I don't think would apply to countries like North America, for example, the U.S. or Canada. Uh, we still have relatively free economies, although they're being overburdened and increasingly burdened with taxes and regulations and labor legislation that, that is aimed to keep people out. I agree that there's sort of a conspiracy out there to keep uh, people unemployed, but it's certainly not coming from uh, cutbacks in government or from employers themselves. They, uh, you know, employers want to see uh, an active workforce, too, because that means that they're making money. Do you want to respond to that, John? Well, I mean, <clears throat> it's certainly true uh, that, that employers want to see an active workforce, but what they also want to see is what people working for the lowest possible wage. Now, uh, the notion that you have uh, employers uh, being uh, fettered by uh, governments who are increasingly regulating things, I mean, the political climate, of course, is moving in exactly the opposite direction. Um, the uh, erosion of programs that's going on. Uh, the fact is that, you know, Mr. Metz, uh, uh, ten years ago, would have been regarded perhaps as somebody crying in the wilderness, but I'm, I'm struck in here by hearing him speak how far governments over the last ten years have moved precisely in the direction he's talking about. Deregulation, uh, privatization, uh, the removal of programs, the weakening of, uh, of things that were regarded as, uh, uh, as, as social rights a number of years ago. Uh, employers, yes, want an, want a, they, they don't just want an active labour force, they want a submissive labour force, and the, uh, the policies that are being delivered by governments are increasingly generating that. Uh, would you describe a formula government involvement that would eliminate or reduce poverty in Ontario? Well, you see, I, 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 I would sort of, I, I would rather disagree with the proposition that, uh, that you have this, this thing called government 
that, uh, that can be benevolent or hostile depending on which way the wind blows. I mean, I, I think that when we're dealing with regimes such as those in Queen's Park and Ottawa, we're dealing with business people, we're dealing with lawyers, we're dealing with people who basically are part and parcel of the, uh, of the system. Uh, and I don't think we can see them as a benevolent force. I think they're, they're moving in a direction that are dictated by the demands of the, uh, of, of the corporations and the banks that they themselves are answer to and are part of. Uh, I think the, the issue is to confront that. The issue is to push back. The issue is to refuse to accept the, uh, the policies that they're ramming down our throats. I, I think there there's a inherent in that comment is a major misunderstanding of what drives corporations and employers to take the tactics that they use. They are not omnipotent beings who can just pay whatever they want, charge whatever they want, or do whatever they want in the marketplace. They in turn are responding to millions and millions of consumers who buy their products, who vote every day with their dollars and their hands and their feet, whether they, whether they support those corporations or not through the production of their products. And when they no longer meet that need, those corporations are as devoid of power and as devoid of influence as anything you could ever expect. Um, you know, it's the same thing as Bill Gates said. If, if a company came out tomorrow and came out with a, some kind of a computer system that did away with his empire, it could happen overnight. He'd be broke. He's got to keep supplying a product that people can afford, that they want to buy, and that they're willing to buy. And that is the bottom line with all productive effort and all productive activity, is to create the goods that we need to survive. And does government have a role then in alleviating poverty? Well, it certainly has a role in not adding to it. And we add the poverty with all these laws and safety net provisions. Again, why do we have universal social programs in a country where most people should be able to afford taking care of their own needs and we should only be directing government resources as a last resort to those few people who cannot? Um, you know, poverty is caused by a lot of things. It's, it's not just innocent and weak people who are poor. Most people are poor, from my experience, from what they do or choose not to do in terms of activity. Poverty is a natural condition. It is not brought upon someone by someone else making wealth. Well, I think when somebody uh, closes down a factory, for example, that could have a bearing on things. Again, a factory doesn't close down just for a whimsical notion. It closes down for a reason. Maybe nobody's buying horse and buggies anymore. Maybe the factory no longer can compete with another factory that's <coughs> doing the job better. Or because a decision has been made to rationalize, streamline and speed up. I mean, the, the point is that uh, people don't just uh, confront uh, um, corporations as consumers where I would say you, you have in any case a rather inflated sense of their power but they confront corporations as workers they work in factories they work in uh, businesses they work in shops whatever and uh, it's precisely in that uh, relationship that we're seeing an incredible erosion of people's gains and rights Wow welcome back you're listening to Just Right on CHRW uh, you know, that was John Clark speaking to myself and to host John Panter back in 1996 when Mike Harris was in power. And you can see this is a guy who's really opposed to the system. And I only wish that the trends feared by John Clark and the clip before the break were actually followed through, you know, by the Harris government, uh, which was just not the case. But isn't it fascinating to hear that Clark disagrees with the term government itself? You know, he doesn't believe a government can be benevolent or hostile, which way the wind blows and all that stuff. And he refers to the regimes of Queen's Park and Ottawa. It's like he's been reading literature from a couple of years, a couple of centuries ago, rather. You know, business people and lawyers are the system. These business people are not benevolent. They're being dictated to by the demands of corporations and the banks. It's the usual conspiracy theories. And, 
you know, the issue for Clark, of course, is to confront and to refuse the system. Is he sounding a bit like an anarchist to you? I know a guy named Mark Emery who might have similar views on the system. But the, the system each of these two different people would advocate is the exact opposite of the other if they would advocate one at all. One wants to use the state, the other wants to smash it. So, you know, those are the two sides of anarchy, and that's a whole other issue that I could get into and spend another show on. But the question is, why would anyone so supposedly committed to fighting or eliminating poverty be, be so opposed to the very process, the only process, there is no other, it hasn't been invented yet, that creates wealth. Capitalism, free markets, voluntary exchange. You know, the reason that people like Clark won't support that is because these values do not promise something for nothing. They don't promise the unearned. That's what the whole game is about. Talk all you want about those in need, but that's the real goal of our poverty pimps and activists. And I call them that because they're making money off of, you know, just the way you talk about a pimp with relationship to prostitution in the negative sense, off of the poor. Now, as you may know, uh, former Toronto mayor and now federal liberal Senate member Art Eggleton was in London very recently pushing the usual state solutions for poverty. Apparently, he's co-penned a report on poverty with conservative Hugh Siegel, demonstrating once again there's no difference between liberals and conservatives. According to these guys, what we need most to solve poverty is, ready for this, political will. That's all we need is political will. So what I really want to know is, how are these guys' goals on the poverty issue really any different from John Clark's goals? Can't we have a little political won't on this issue for a change? And then, of course, there's the elephant in the room, the poor. Has it ever occurred to anyone that there's no such thing as the poor? That there's no such thing as the rich? Both of these terms are kind of make-believe terms. And I'm not saying that you might not be poor at a given point in time, but there's no collective group that's permanently fixed called the poor. And the poor is a collectivist term. It's a political weasel word. It artificially groups individuals by whatever subjective criteria you can imagine. You can pick on income below a chosen value. You can pick on property ownership, unemployment, even happiness. We're talking about happiness now. Because money is uh, going out the window under, under all these government programs. So now they're going to redistribute happiness, you see. So uh, that this artificial non-existent entity called the poor, they can treat it as a political interest, you see. And that opens the tap to unlimited government spending without any accountability. That's why we have it. You see the power of epistemology, why we talk about definitions on this show so much? The power of a single concept, or in this case, most definitely a non-concept. The rich is another collectivist term, exactly like the poor, except that the rich is a group treated not as a political interest, but as a political target. And that opens the tap to unlimited government taxation. Yin and yang. Add a dash of altruism and bingo, you've got the welfare state. Uh, you know, I think it was Mae West or someone said, I've been rich and I've been poor and honey, rich is better. Well, of course. So why don't we all spend some time and effort to discover how to create wealth? instead of how to always fight poverty. Because, you know, I think if we did that for a change, we'd discover that, you know, I've been free and I've been in chains and Mr. Freedom is better. That's the real secret to a society's wealth creation. Ayn Rand used to always say whenever we speak of the countries, the have-not countries, she said the thing that they have not is freedom. And it always is. I've spoken to people from Africa who emigrated here. 
And the thing they want to see in Africa is the right to, to, to negotiate a deal, to guarantee a contract. If somebody, if you you know do a job for somebody, they want to know they can count on the government to come back and and uh, go after that guy if he doesn't pay for the work you did for him. But these conditions don't exist in a lot of places. And that's all that's needed. It's so simple. People can help themselves. This big mass called the poor, the one thing you can be sure that all collectivists think is that that, that, that group is helpless. The, they need outside help. They can't help themselves in any way, shape, or form. Now, and if you haven't noticed, you know, every politician judges his political success with respect to social programs and how much money his government throws at the problem. My party spent more than the other party, and therefore my party is a better choice to resolve this issue. It's, an, it's just an endless refrain. It's shared by New Democrats, liberals, and conservatives alike, and by John Clark. So, you know, welcome to the welfare state, the real cause of real proper, poverty. Real poverty is caused by a denial of individual rights, the right to consent to any work arrangement suitable to both parties with the protection of the law, the right to private ownership and private contract. Like if someone doesn't pay your bill, you want to know you can count on the government to establish your just claim. An end to government business monopolies, which come in the form of crown corporations, exclusive private franchises, etc. And to labor monopolies, the elimination of minimum wage laws, for heaven's sakes. You want to get rid of most of our poverty? Get rid of that. That'd do a lot of it. The elimination of income tax. You know, we are, I don't know if I could say becoming anymore. Maybe we are. We're a country that punishes productivity and rewards unearned consumption. And unless we turn direction 180 degrees as quickly as possible, I don't see Canada lasting very long. I mean, sure, it'll survive, it'll exist, but very much more impoverished. One, you know, a nation that won't have very much in common with its, with its original values. And uh, it's interesting, you know, the Salvation Army just released a report this week where they discovered that 37% of Canadians have a negative attitude towards the poor. I guess I'd be in, the, in that category today. And they put out something called the Dignity Project as their attempt to fight that perception. And a couple of the main perceptions they object to is that poverty is a choice, the poor are mostly themselves to blame, and if anyone wants a job, they can get one. Well, that's true, and it is, and isn't it? It depends on, you can get a job. Um, it would be nice if you get one that you didn't have to worry about things like the minimum wage. You know, I remember back in the 50s and 60s, my dad used to employ certain people who might be called homeless or certainly poor, even by the standards of that time, which were pretty good, really. And he was in the construction business and always had basic physical labor jobs for anyone who was willing to do them for the price offered. And some of these folks would board in our home, and a lot of them were great workers, hard workers, honest. They'd show up on time, do their jobs, but then one day they'd suddenly disappear without a word, never to be heard from again. I remember my dad explaining to me that guys like that work only until they get up to a certain amount of money and then they move on. They survive for a while, but they never put down roots and they're part of what we might call uh, the working poor in this country. And of course, if you want to put them on a welfare system, you've got to get them to have a fixed address and, and be in one place all the time and, and not go around and be self-sufficient. So you can see the issue here. That's enough of this issue for now. I'm going to give the last word to John Clark, and when we return on the other side, we're going to talk a little bit about um, fluoride in our water. See, when Mr. Metz talks in terms of wouldn't it be nice to remove all these programs, wouldn't it be nice to do these things, I mean, that's his personal philosophy, and that's, uh, that's fine as far as it goes. But what he comes up against is the fact that people who are hungry and people who are seeing their living standards destroyed are just not prepared to accept that. 
they're going to they're resist that, they're going to fight back. The social programs that were won in this country, like unemployment insurance, like Medicare, they weren't some benevolent gift that came down from on high. They were won precisely because people organised to demand them. A delegation appeared from the unemployed that went before R.B. Bennett, the Prime Minister of the 1930s, the Tory Prime Minister, and suggested the introduction of a program of unemployment insurance. And he threw them out of his office with the words that no government I'm part of will ever put a premium on idleness. But even R.B. Bennett, in the course of the next five years, was forced to uh, put more money into, uh, into relief programs than any government had previously done in, uh, in, in Canadian history. And he didn't do that because he went out and uh, saw the plight of the people and his heart melted. He did it because people fought back and people resisted. Now, that's precisely uh, the point I'm making now with regards to the Harris government. This is not some abstract debate. Harris is talking about going in and taking the food off of people's tables. He's talking about creating a situation where the bargaining power of people at the workplace is substantially reduced and their living standards are cut dramatically. And he better believe that people are going to fight back against that. Picking up on some of the language you've been using and, and, and from the Internet, and I want to quote uh, some statements from your own organization. Uh, the coalition has organized bank occupations, a festival of noise-making and heckling, Harrisville, a tent city of food, song, and anti-Harris resistance, a Robin Hood march, which is a parade through the wealthiest neighborhoods to remind uh, them of the suffering of the poor. Uh, isn't some of this language a trifle baroque? And, and don't you run the risk of, of uh, being marginalized or dismissed as uh, wild-eyed radicals when you use words like anti-Harris resistance, for instance? You, you almost are describing an army of occupation and uh, underground freedom well, fighters. Well, some of the, uh, the things you're reading out, I suspect you, your source is not directly from us, it's somebody... Uh, well, this uh, is the Kitchener-Waterloo Coalition, or, or chapter of the uh, oh, okay, Coalition okay, Against Oh, okay, okay, it wasn't something that came out of our office, but nonetheless, it's essentially correct. Well, he's fully recovered. Except for a few minor kinks. Has he asked for anything special? Yes, morning for breakfast. Uh, he requested something called wheat germ, organic honey, and tiger's milk. <laughs> oh, yes, those are the charm substances that some years ago were felt to contain life-preserving properties. You mean there was no deep fat? No steak or cream pies or hot fudge? Those were thought to be unhealthy. Precisely the opposite of what we now know to be true. Incredible. I can't believe this. I go into the hospital for a lousy ulcer operation. I lay around on a bird's eye wrapper for 200 years. I wake up suddenly. I'm on the 10 most wanted list. He's ranting. We'd better tranquilize him. I knew it was too good to be true. I parked right near the hospital. Now, here. You smoke this. And be sure you get the smoke deep down into your lungs. I don't smoke. It's tobacco. It's one of the healthiest things for your body. Now, go ahead. You need all the strength you can get. You know, I bought Polaroid at seven. It's probably up minions by now. <laughs> Woody Allen in his movie Sleeper. You know, they could have been talking, I guess, about um, fluoride instead of cigarettes as being a charmed substance because that might be another one of the myths that goes by the wayside. You know, this past week, the issue of public water fluoridation was raging in the city of London thanks to an anti-fluoridation effort being made by some local concerned citizens who brought Dr. Paul Connett to the city to make a case against fluoride, and he spoke last night to a packed audience from what I understand. 
the awareness campaign was somewhat championed, uh, not just somewhat, totally championed by CJBK's Andy Utman, who had Dr. Conrad appear with him on his radio show, along with author and nutritionist Pam Colleen. He's also been challenging the, the chief uh, you know, medical officer of health, Dr. Graham Pollitt, to debate Dr. Conrad on the issue so that he and Londoners could arrive at, hopefully, an objective evaluation given the opportunity to hear both sides of this issue. I called in on that uh, show once myself and found myself generally in agreement with their mission and most suspicious about the view taken by officialdom. You know, the first thing, I hadn't heard the term fluorosis, really. I wasn't paying attention to this issue too much until I heard actually one of the medical officers mention it. And I looked it up in Wikipedia. And I discovered that, uh, you know, you hear about dental fluorosis, which is just little white spots on the teeth and stuff like that. But skeletal fluorosis is a big problem. The World Health Organization uh, talks about, you know, extreme debilitating crippling forms of arthritis that they see being uh, caused by fluoride in the water in countries like China and India. Now, you have to be aware that these countries have natural fluoride in their water and some of it is in, in, in toxic levels and probably a lot higher than what we are adding to our own. But it certainly is endemic. It's, you're talking about 2.7 million people in China have the crippling form of skeletal fluorosis. And in India, 20 states identified as endemic areas with an estimated 60 million people at risk, 6 million disabled, 600,000 to develop a neurological order as a consequence. And uh, this is from the World Health Organization. And yet this particular study was not mentioned by anyone in the local debate. And that makes me scratch my head a little bit on either side. But one thing I've noticed about this whole debate is, is you know, the whole precautionary principle being enacted again. This, this idea of prevention is a cure. Don't, you know, it's the don't get sick cure for our healthcare system. Uh, and the bigger picture, of course, is water wars, which we've talked about on this show a lot. Government versus privatization, which is a UN initiative, by the way. But one of the big questions that keeps coming up with respect to the fluoride issue is the issue of trust. Trust in our public officials to tell us the truth about issues in which the government has a direct interest. Uh, this is a faith in government that is becoming fast eroded, you know, because let's face it, we get false and misleading statements by our authorities all the time. Uh, I'm starting to believe very much so that we're getting, if not false, certainly misleading statements on fluoride certainly on airbags. I did a whole show on airbags, and just look at the warning on an airbag. Why they put them in a car, I don't know. Because, you know, the scientific argument is an airbag will save a life in an accident. But they don't care about how many airbags kill people when you're not in an accident. <laughs> what have they told us about cannabis, on diet and nutrition, on climate, on electricity generation, on health care, on education, on CO2, on the economy, on idling your car, on every status policy of every political party. It's all false and misleading stuff. Why should we, why, do we, why would you even trust government with something like this? I listened very carefully to the arguments of our public health care officials, including Dr. Graham Pollock, who on fluoridate, fluoridation in London's water said this is a program that protects the teeth. Everyone benefits. And the Middlesex and London Health Unit says fluoride in our water is safe and that the current rates of fluorosis are acceptable. So they know about it. You know, there's fluorosis out there, but it's acceptable. And probably mostly what they're thinking about is the teeth. Because the interesting thing is, is here's a quote from Wikipedia. 
Although skeletal fluorosis has been studied intensely in other countries for more than 40 years, virtually no research has been done in the U.S. to determine how many people are afflicted with the early stages of the disease because the clinical symptoms mimic arthritis, which are, you know, the first two clinical phases. So, in other words, North America has done no studies on this. Meanwhile, the rest of the world has, and no wonder that Europe has gotten away from... Uh, fluoridating their water. I understand the province of Quebec quit. Um, British Columbia quit. They're all going that way, and I think it's just a matter of time before we do. And, um, you know, none of our officials will explain, locally, I mean, why so many other cities in Europe, and, you know, who they always fall over, have you noticed, they want to emulate these countries constantly if, if it's a green policy or if it's a, if it's a union labor contract kind of rate thing. They'll just say, oh, well, they're doing it in that city. we got to do it here. Well, now, here's the first time we should be doing something to emulate from other cities, and, well, we're not just going to do it because other cities are doing it. Does that make any sense? And, of course, nobody's answering the question why fluoride should be ingested at all when its only purported cavity-fighting property relates to surface contact, you know, topical, on the tooth. Is adding fluoride to drinking water really necessary? And there is an issue that I'm a little bit on both sides of here, and that's the issue of toxicity. I think it's been a little exaggerated by the anti-fluoride forces. When they say that fluoride is, you know, they go, it's an industrial byproduct, indicating an, an anti-industrial bias in a kind of a way, not necessarily an anti-fluoride bias, since fluoride is found naturally in drinking water around the world, often far in excess of recommended doses that we're using from the industrial stuff. And uh, some of the worst demonstrated cases of fluorosis come from these natural areas, not from the more highly industrialized areas. Although that has yet to be studied, doesn't it? I might be totally taking that back next time. But the important thing is that toxicity is entirely a matter of dose, of quantity, over a given period of time. And it's important to understand that everything you can ingest is toxic, including water itself. H2O is toxic at certain levels. Ask, ask, just ask the fire DJs from California in that radio station who ran a water drinking contest a few years ago for their listeners, with one of them dying in the contest of water toxicity because they were drinking too much. Uh, you, you, I mean, you can die of it. Drowning is a whole other issue, but penicillin is toxic if you take too much. Aspirin is toxic. One or two might be good for you. Take a bottle. I don't think that's too good for you. Food is toxic. Aren't we hearing that all the time? People are eating too much food. Uh, you know, and, of course, some of the people behind this anti-fluoride debate are also talking about that issue as well. So I guess my, my closing thought on this is, uh, so what's wrong with choice? Why don't we make a choice? When, you know, with a municipal water monopoly run by government, of course, choice is alien to such a system. Uh, and this is a funny thing too. Here's the city's been arguing, you know, oh, we don't want to be selling watered bottle, you know, bottles in or water in bottles on city property. We have forced fluoridation, banning of water bottles, you know, not sugary drink bottles, mind you, but water bottles. Actually, using the argument that buying water in bottles competes with municipal water service, just ridiculous. We don't have to sell our competition's product on our own property, says the city. And, uh, and those who want to ban water that comes from anywhere other than London's taps. Because, you know, they do allow people to bring their own bottled water from elsewhere. And even the bottled water producers themselves compete with each other. There's different brands of bottled water. Should one brand be allowed to ban another brand because they're sold on the same property? I mean, 
you can make a deal like that with a local grocer or store owner, but if the public wants a choice and you don't offer it, giving them what they don't want is not the way to do business or to do politics. And that's all I've got to say for this week. And we're going to take off. And next week, I'm sure Robert Vaughn will be back with us. So until then, we hope you will join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right. Be right back here. See you then. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be you, what the heck is going on? I mean, with food, and we're like so messed up with food. How is it that the term lactose intolerance has entered into our lexicon? How is that, people? Why is it now that we are intolerant of food? We should be intolerant of racism. We should be intolerant of anti-Semitism. We should be intolerant of homophobia. Why is it that we're intolerant of food? Look, when I was growing up, if you couldn't drink your milk, it was because you were allergic and you drank it anyway!